This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Hello, I'm Andrew Fitzgerald. I'm the Chief Digital Content Officer for Hearst Television. I love content. Obviously, it's in my job title. I think what I love most about content in 2019 is people are telling incredibly unique and amazing stories. And as a consumer of content, there has never been a better time in history to connect with incredible stories. And I'm excited to be in a business that gets to do some small part of them. Unless you live under a rock, you've heard of Hearst, a leading global diversified media information and services company with more than 360 businesses. One of them is Hearst TV, a national multimedia company with operations serving nearly three dozen U.S. cities, reaching one out of every five U.S. households. It delivers local and national news, weather, information, sports, and entertainment programming via every available content delivery platform. So what kind of thinking and insight does the former director of curation for Twitter bring as chief digital content officer for Hearst TV as he leads digital content efforts across Hearst Television's local stations and central teams? Well, coming up, you'll hear from him in a wide-ranging and useful conversation. From New York City, you're listening to Content Is Your Business. Conversations with industry leaders and influencers covering the strategy and innovation of brand storytelling. Hi, this is Michael Villasenor from Hearst Newspapers. I'm joined here with Natasha Charlton-Brown. Hi, everyone. Great to be back. Natasha and I were talking prior to this opportunity to really think through what is like the question. How do we get this started? And led us down a path to Hearst Television when it started and what the product was and how they were thinking about what the opportunity was there. And then that in contrast or comparison to where you are today and what Hearst Television perhaps as a different mission or the same mission applied differently. If you could maybe paint a picture of like what the difference would be between where it began and the intention and where you are today and with your own experience where you're leading it. Sure. So Hearst, as you well know as an employee, is over 130 years old. It is a real deal legacy media company. It has been a legacy media company in plenty of previous disruptions. And people were like, oh, Hearst, legacy media company in the 1960s. I was actually just reading our former CEO's book, uh, Leave Something on the Table. That's my plug for Frank Benick's book. <laughs> um, and it's great. It's it's sort of, it's a lovely picture of his experience in business and his experience running what I think is a very fascinating media company. And the television business was for Hearst in an earlier decade. That was the disruption. That was the innovation. They brought in electronic media, radio and television, because they wanted to diversify beyond print, beyond newspapers, beyond magazines. And so in an era earlier in Frank Benick's career, television was the disruptor. It was going to put all the newspapers out of business. It was you know, the, the future. And it has become a very important and valuable piece of our business. I think television did not 
put newspapers out of business and grew to be a very important piece of the local media landscape. And one of the things I really love about Hearst is how deeply the company cares about local media landscapes in whatever markets they're in, be it newspapers or television. Over the last several decades, television has changed as viewing patterns have changed. But in a lot of ways, the format feels familiar. And I think that's one of the powers of television is that it is in a changing media landscape. It feels familiar to audience who are looking for that stability in how they consume media. Obviously, however, news consumption patterns are changing significantly. Even in local media, you're looking at surveys where people are saying they're consuming, you know, 14% of people say the most important place they consume news media is social media. Uh, 20 some odd percent of people say the most important place they consume media is digital platforms. None of those are a television station. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Hearst Television has for the last decade been working very hard to figure out a digital future for local media as a representation of these TV brands. And I was very pleased. I've joined the company about two and a half years ago and was very pleased to see the progress they had made when I came in. But really our next phase is we have to sort of reimagine what news consumption, news production can look like in the local landscape. It's a big challenge. It's a daunting challenge. But yeah. I'm there because I think it's a really exciting challenge. And are you doing that in combination with thinking through whatever the connected TV strategy is as well? Do They, they have to complement each mm -hmm. other, right? So how do you, how do you balance that? It's, uh, it's interesting. I think we're focused on innovating into new formats, but we're very careful to – not disrupt the existing legacy format too much. Mm. And I think this is a, you know, we we have learned a lot of lessons from the transformation that newspapers have undergone in the last decade. If you completely radically change your newspaper product, the people who rely on it, the people who are your core audience might not like that. And I think for us, we have a really stellar television product that in most of our markets is the number one newscast in that market. And we want to preserve that. Yeah, we want to make sure that that connection that we have with our viewers stays as powerful as it is. At the same time, we need to be able to reach people who are not watching those newscasts. So trying to figure out the right pathways to take good journalism that we're doing on television and translate that into platforms where people are consuming media in other ways. I think that's fascinating. I mean, was it maybe five years ago, six years ago, people were saying the future of the web is video, mm -hmm. right? It was just like, if you're not creating video, mm -hmm. you're, you just get out of the way. You create tons of video content. I know. And, it's a lot. And, and, and also to some degree, I'm guessing audio that could be extracted. And so are you looking at and this is sort of a maybe just to add one more aspect to this conversation is having a conversation with a friend the other day about podcasts and his wife listens to podcasts at 1.5 times the speed, right? So that she can get through it quicker. And I asked the question, is that a problem with how we're creating podcasts or is it that, you know, to make them uh, shorter mm -hmm. in order so she can achieve her goal of listening to something in a certain time frame, or is it actually that a podcast should just be read 
1.5 times as fast. So that is it, is it, you know, more uh, to how she's in tune uh, listening to it. Anyway, the point is, is are we, are the content you're creating, are you, is that, I know despite the platform and keeping that the same for your, your viewers, are you creating different types of content so they can be applied in different ways, right? So if you have video, are you taking video and sort of augmenting that so it's more available on social or you're using YouTube as a, as a, as a channel, maybe in a, tailoring that content in a way so that's more um, fitted towards that audience or the consumption method? Absolutely. I will do my best to answer 1.5 speed. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Anyone's <laughs> listening to this fast can we go to... back to that? That's yeah, fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've yeah, got yeah. to try it. <laughs> so... Five years ago, everyone looking at digital media was like, the future is video. You would think that video news providers all of a sudden reign supreme. Yeah. That in that moment, all of the local news providers, the national news providers who make news for TV were like, yes, our time has finally come. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The challenge was that's not how audiences saw it. Audiences did not expect a package that was produced for television to be how they would consume video on digital and it's almost you the shorthand way of thinking about it is you want to tell a story on tv in reverse of how you would tell a story on digital platforms in video explain that on yeah. television you're building to a reveal hmm. so you're uh, you're layering in information and over time, you are going to build up to this is the news making part hmm. on digital platforms, because so much of the experience of consuming video on digital platforms is browsing and the user behavior is I'm trying to maximize the information that I'm pulling out of the digital ecosystem at this very moment, uh, listening to podcasts 1.5 yeah. times <laughs> the speed. The user behavior is I want – I need information right this second. You've got to give that information at the top of the piece mm -hmm. and you have to keep giving interesting things as the video builds but you need to grab them at the very yeah. beginning. And that's the same in the written form, right? Yeah. Right. You know, you've got a yeah. splashy headline. You've got the first mm -hmm. opener, paragraph, mm -hmm. maybe some bullets and then you go into the details. So right. It's just mimicking that form. And and then like different production things like most web video is consumed sound off. Most television produced video is led by a reporter with a with an audio track. So the world did not work out perfectly for providers yeah, yeah. of video news on television when all of a sudden video was a hot thing on the web. Yeah. What that has meant is that teams like mine, really, we spend a lot of time thinking about. We have incredible journalism that's happening. There is really fantastic video content, but we need to figure out how to repackage it mm -hmm. for different platforms. And it gets even more complicated when you get into the granularity of how different platforms behave today, YouTube versus Facebook versus Facebook Watch versus Twitter versus our own websites. Consumption patterns on all of those are pretty different. Mm -hmm. And so in theory, we would have teams just producing, reproducing video content for every single one of those platforms. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, in theory, that's that's sort of – I think if if you got all the platforms in a room and you were like, what should we do? They would all say in unison, you should produce uniquely for us. <laughs> and you'd be like, well, you know that's – you're not paying us. <laughs> <laughs> so that's not gonna work <laughs> you know thinking about your 
in particular your your experience at at Twitter and creating and working for an organization that's creating short form sort of really pointed conversations, right? Uh, hundred I don't even I can't remember what the original character limit was. Hundred forty characters, right? Two hundred and eighty now. Um, you take that experience around storytelling that is somewhat short, but also I guess linked and can be long, and then you move over to Hearst Television and you're working through the digital platforms. Are there learnings or ways that you had interpreted content creation at Twitter? that you are now looking at maybe some of your digital properties and say, could we do something shorter or something different? I don't know if there has there been a tie-in or some sort of carryover? I think probably the most valuable lesson I learned about content at Twitter was really around the curation of interesting content. And in Twitter's case, a lot of that was sort of the initial – piece of information. Um, so uh, when I was at Twitter, I had a wide variety of roles. The last role I had was I built and ran the Twitter moments curation team. And we essentially looked at as wide a swath of Twitter as we could, tried to find the conversations that were bubbling up around Twitter and then choose the individual tweets that best reflected that conversation. And conversation, uh, like content, is a word that can mean many things. Mm -hmm. In Twitter's case, conversation could mean a major breaking news story. It could mean the conversation around a sporting event, celebrity conversations literally between celebrities or about celebrities, and in lots of cases, memes. Awesome, right, right. hilarious memes. And in that world, we thought about the Moments product as sort of the the weird little newspaper of the weird little republic of Twitter mm -hmm. where we were reporting on things that were happening in this space. And in that world, a meme was just as important or valuable as a news story mm – -hmm because it was also driving conversation. And I think the thing I learned from the work that we were doing there that I'm still using now is the power of pulling elements from different places and combining those into stories from multiple perspectives that can be really powerful, that are not kind of we were organized all the elements and now we're going to like drop a reporter in and the reporter is going to like re-report all the things that we learned on social media. Mm -hmm. Instead, it's like, no, no, let's start with the primary elements. Let's tell the story with the primary elements. So as I mentioned before, a lot of the work that my team does at Hearst is taking reporting from our television stations and repackaging it for digital audiences. And in many cases, we're doing something similar where we're mm -hmm. identifying – interesting local stories produced for local audiences that we think would resonate with national audiences and either curating a collection of those or in some cases piecing some of those together to tell a broader story across a theme. You have a fascinating background steeped in editorial. You know, there's content, there's video, there's news, there's business, guessing some operations if you're actually able to get this stuff done as well. How important do you think it is as a creative, as a storyteller, as a leader in the modern media company to have experience in all of these kind of what used to be disparate functions across an organization? Do you think that's absolutely critical 
right now in order for the success of media to continue in these new landscapes or it's not so much a consideration, you still have a large organisation to lean on? Does it enable you to just move faster having all of those skills under your belt? I think for digital media, the more cross-trained you can be, the better. Legacy media, decades ago, when people were getting rich in media, it made sense to take disparate functions and separate them out and sort of build disciplines around these, like around sales, around business, around editorial. And the digital landscape is, A, somehow not as lucrative Despite the fact that it's like cool and awesome and audiences are bigger and there's more content than ever, somehow not as lucrative. And so you don't have the benefit of the person power to be able to Mm -hmm. put people into different Mm -hmm. disciplines. Also, digital media is still very much in flux. And so much of journalism to date and the editorial content creation in general, uh, uh, journalism or entertainment – is about filling a format. There is a, an existing format and what you do inside of that format is the work. More and more throughout my career, digital media has been about not just what you're doing inside of the format, but creating the format itself. Mm. And we often celebrate a new format and someone who is not only telling a new story, but telling a new story in a new way. And in order to do that, you have to understand the whole thing. You have to understand the operations piece. You have to understand the business piece. You have to understand the editorial piece. And so increasingly for me, it has been very important to be as cross-trained as I possibly can be. As I talk to people who are earlier in their career and asking for sort of, you know, how do I think about – I want to write. I want to write articles. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, well – you know, articles mean a different thing now than they used to. And think about, you know, what what that means for you, what formats you're most attracted to, but more than anything, always be flexible. And flexibility for me has meant learning as much as I can in every role that I'm in. I anticipate one, I, I doubt I'll ever retire. Right. You know, <laughs> media, media in 2019. Does anyone? Yeah, right. um, uh, but uh, I'm happy yeah, with yeah, that. Yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah. I enjoy the work. But I also think I'll never stop learning. I think yeah. I never imagine a role that I get into where I'm like, oh, I know how to do all of this stuff. I'll just keep executing the playbook that I've always done. I right. think my career will probably always be, well, we're going to have to make a new playbook for that. Right. Like right. <laughs> we, my, my running joke at work right now is this is our, our plan for next year looks like this, but you know, you have to assume that sometime late 2020 glib glorp launches and we're just trying to like, we're just trying to get our reglibs on the, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and maximize our, yeah, our glorp yeah, glibs, exactly. yeah, you yeah. know? Yeah. <laughs> They say that any digital plan is only really good for approximately six months and then you can write off the end of (laughs) the last two quarters. (laughs) Um, We do have a plan, though, next thing, which is Andrew's brought in and been nice enough to bring in a snack and share it with us. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you brought and why you brought it? Sure. It is a it's a it's a brown paper bag. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Just really, really focused on display. Uh, The brown paper bag is full of apples. Uh, These are apples that were uh, that I picked. 
in a small orchard in Vermont called Champlain Orchards. We spent a lot of time in upstate New York, far upstate in the Adirondacks, uh, and we love to, in the fall go across Lake Champlain and right across Lake Champlain from New York is this uh, is this orchard. So these are Wonderful. a variety of apples. Look at the color of them. Yeah. They're, they're, yeah, they're, they're beautiful. <laughs> they're gorgeous. So bag of apples. Awesome. Uh, you could ask, Andrew, what does this reflect about you? Yeah, what does this reflect about uh, you? Which I suspect <laughs> is, the, is the next question. Uh, and it, um, it's just so wholesome, right? It's just, I know. It's just, it's just so, so wholesome. Yeah. If we're being honest with ourselves, Andrew's bag of apples represents two aspects of Andrew's personality. Number one, I am a terrible procrastinator. And I was literally yesterday in New Orleans and could have bought, <laughs> could have like brought snacks from New Orleans. Right. Uh, did not read the email until I was on the plane home and went, no. <laughs> um, but I also try and always give myself a lot of options in the future. And so when uh, we picked apples, we picked a lot. There you go. <laughs> but I think there's a third aspect, creativity. Yes. I think, you know. I appreciate that. <laughs> Hi, I'm Roseanne Gold. I'm a chef, an author, a food writer, and the host of a new podcast called One Woman Kitchen. So excited to be doing this because I'm interviewing the most fascinating women in the food world. And you don't even have to be interested in the food world or be part of it to enjoy these remarkable women's stories. It's diverse, it's international, it's intergenerational. What's most exciting to me is that the concept of One Woman Kitchen means something different for everyone. You can listen to One Woman Kitchen every week at onewomankitchenshow.com. And also where all the best podcasts can be found. How have you looked at the way that maybe social networks such as Facebook and Twitter shaping stories? Have, have those had impact on how you tell a story, maybe outside of work, just thinking about you as a content creator online? Hmm. So, I was, so I was at Twitter for a long time and I – a very long time in Twitter years. I was there for five and a half years, which <laughs> means that like I, I – a lifetime. It was a couple of lifetimes. <laughs> yeah. And, and one, of, one of the things that I did at Twitter – of the various things that I did, one of the things I did at Twitter was uh, work with publishers and authors. And I got really into this idea, particularly Twitter. And I, I think this is largely true of digital media writ large, but Twitter especially has enormous potential as a storytelling platform. Mm -hmm. And you see people, particularly a couple of years ago, you were seeing people using Twitter in these interesting experimental ways that you could argue Twitter wasn't designed for, but Twitter mm -hmm. kind of wasn't designed for a specific job to be done. Right, right, right. Uh, at the beginning, it was just kind of like, this is how we're using it. This is how we're using it. That All of these seem yeah, yeah. relevant and interesting. And so you would see people doing things like fake accounts. There was a, a whole period, a kind of heyday of fake accounts on Twitter where people were telling full narrative stories mm -hmm. Sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. Sometimes they were just parodying someone and yeah. and kind of got deeper into the character and story as they went. Uh, in some cases, it was it was very deliberate. The journalist Dan Sinker 
did a very famous fake account for uh, Mayor Emanuel around the Chicago mayoral election, which was such a narrative that Dan got a book deal out of it. Mm. But you saw people kind of playing with this idea of identity Mm -hmm. and that a Twitter account was supposed to represent identity, but it was also flexible. Mm -hmm. And so with flexible identity, there's a lot of opportunity to tell interesting inventive stories people i think also have played with visual storytelling on twitter uh on vine when we had mm-hmm, vine mm-hmm. when i say we had vine i mean i mean we as a society yeah right mm-hmm. right, right, right rest in peace vine yeah. you have tiktok now mm, i suppose it's yeah. <laughs> funny i actually had a chance when i was it was 2007 i had very randomly wrote an email to twitter asking if I can come in. I was working for like the college newspaper. I was like, I just wanted to interview you guys. And they were off of a, I feel like Folsom or something like that in San Francisco. Yeah. They had 15 employees. Mm-hmm. And I went in there just kind of like, what is this? You know, was, I was, you know, last year of college. And um, they were talking through their, I forget what her name was, but uh, at, they were starting and she was like head of PR. And she's talking to how more recently in the last few weeks, this thing called hashtags has started showing up. Right. And they built this platform in a way with one intention, which was the 140 characters. That's all you get to post. And then the notion of tagging came in that they had not built the platform for, but people were using it. Right. And how that shifted strategically what the product was going to be. And it was the first time when I believe, I guess it was Biz or whomever at the top was saying that we no longer own the trajectory of this product, mm-hmm. that the product itself is now going to be determined by how people use it. Yeah. yeah. And the consumers uh, themselves. Yeah. yeah. And I think what's fascinating is I think in legacy businesses, we don't often do that. That right. we perceive that our consumers want and accept our product the way we've created it. And now we live in a world where our product needs to be shaped in a lot of ways, by the way right. people are consuming. And so, um, I don't know, maybe this ties into any one of the, your sort of histories, but um, maybe that, that's kind of thinking about how are you getting in touch with your viewers mm-hmm. or your digital, I guess, consumers? And how are you maybe leveraging those data points to strategically pivot and or augment your uh, business strategy? Yeah, I think, so there, there's sort of explicit communication with users um, well, and let me let me make a caveat. So Twitter, I think, was excellent yeah. in its in its first decade at listening to users and sort of evolving the product in response to users. Hashtags came from users. At replies came from users. Retweet came from users. Quote tweet came from users. That's right, you all put of RT that was, in front. Yeah, yeah. All of that was was user behavior. Um, all businesses mature, mm-hmm. and so to watch. Yeah, and I, I say this. I say this with love and a lot of sympathy (laughs) but to watch twitter try to sort of be what its users want it to be now Mm -hmm. is difficult because twitter is used by a lot of different people for a lot of different use cases um and so it's and i I think that you know it's it's a lot easier when you're starting out and everything's everything's great and like (laughs) and largely people are using your platform for good right uh, right. and not ill and i think you know like maybe when twitter is 132 years old we you know people will be like recording a glorp cast about (laughs) twitter and they'll be like can you believe that you know for 10 years, Twitter, like, listens to its users. (laughs) And 122 years, it didn't. Yeah, Um, But no, but I do think, I think one of the 
fundamental shifts in media that social media brought was the opportunity for the audience to give feedback. Mm. And the I pretty much my entire time at Twitter, I was in a variety of different roles, but on the media partnerships team. So working with media organizations to help them understand Twitter, effectively use Twitter, whether they were news organizations or sports leagues or uh, entertainment companies, whatever. And you saw this really interesting shift in how audiences, fans began to interact with content. Hmm. And even, even to the tune, I mean, Twitter was not unique in this. Uh, I think about like bulletin boards around Lost and the sort of like the power of bulletin boards in the final couple mm-hmm. of seasons of Lost and how like that's right, that's right. like news mm-hmm. came out that like, the showrunners were like reading through the bulletin boards like being like, well, we don't really have a plan, but maybe the fans do. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, mean, I, don't, I don't know that that's actually true, but, uh, you know. Considering uh, the ending, I was, you it know. <laughs> certainly seems like it. The yeah. um, and, and so you you see this kind of like power of the audience voice right right largely social platforms i think for for us as we're as we're creating news content we're listening to explicit feedback from the audience mm-hmm. but you know tell us what we should be covering i think lo- local news especially listening to your audience has always been a part of mm-hmm. that business you are some of our most important sources because you live in the community. Right, right. And it used to be that they would only call the newsroom. Phone would ring, you'd pick it up, and someone would be like, oh, my God, I can't believe something's happening in my neighborhood. Right. Send a truck. Uh, Now we have all sorts of different channels. And in some cases, people are producing their own media and sending that to us and Mm -hmm. saying like – I, here's a here's a photo of my child in a Halloween costume. Right, uh, right. <laughs> I, I think more people should see this. You help people see more things. Like here you go. Um, and so that that's the kind of explicit piece. There's also an implicit piece about audience consumption patterns, which uh, you and I I think are in our positions at Hearst pay a lot of attention to, which is what are people reading. How – what is their read depth? Mm-hmm. How much time do they spend on the site? How, like all of those metrics do a lot to change the way that we tell stories and have done a lot in the last couple of years to really mold story creation. Mm-hmm. And I think in a lot of ways that's powerful. Um, you know, if you were – Decades ago, if you were producing a magazine, producing a newspaper, a lot of it was you you were kind of you're kind of taking a stab in the dark. Like mm-hmm. we we believe strongly that this is what the audience wants. And mm-hmm. you know, maybe you bring some focus groups in, you get some yeah, some yeah, specific yeah. feedback. We now are swimming in data around what the audience wants and will react to. And balancing that data against our own editorial judgment. judgments. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so in a lot of ways, I think I think it's extraordinarily valuable to be in an editorial position where you really know what your audience wants mm-hmm. is – that's that's the sort of power that I think an editor loves to have. The downside of that is in some cases, if you – if you get the balance wrong, if you pay too close attention to the data and not enough attention to the editorial instinct, like it skews. 
Uh, and in fact, actually, uh, you'll see sort of audiences won't like it anymore. Mm. You're like, but so we're giving you, the product we're giving right, you right, everything right, you want. Right, and they're right. like, yeah, 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 but it's not yeah, like, yeah. that's not actually, yeah. I want, I want to feel like I want the other stuff. Even right. if I'm not mm-hmm, working mm-hmm. on it. Um, <laughs> and so, and that's, that's kind of one risk. The yeah. other risk, frankly, is as you look at the last couple of years, as the platforms have tried to navigate a glut of content a glut of audience they have tried to manage that problem by introducing algorithms that manage the flow of information it's a it's a very sensical approach mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the problem is those algorithms have rules built in and those rules determine how far and wide content goes and if if you and i are using facebook as individuals and we're like sharing updates about our lives it doesn't matter that much to us whether or not facebook has exposed our posts to so many people or few people right right. we don't unless we're like quite vain and i'll admit uh, maybe that's me (laughs) uh we're not we're not really clued into right right the efficacy of the algorithm on that content uh but once you invite businesses to share content in newsfeed, that algorithm has real-world business impact. Mm-hmm. And to watch the sort of shifting of content in response to decisions that are made about the newsfeed algorithm mm-hmm. is – that I think is a is a, a significant downside to living in a world where data can help us – can help inform editorial consequence. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. you know – Businesses that were built specifically because at some point Facebook decided to boost video in the algorithm and those businesses are now either struggling or out of business. Yeah, yeah. Um, the What I feel like is the era that we're still living in in this moment, which is that the algorithm rewards engagement, the things that drive engagement are posts that drive emotion – the most powerful emotion that you can drive is rage or anger. And so you see a lot of content mm-hmm. widely shared on Facebook that is specifically designed to trigger anger or rage. Hmm. And and it's even I think it's easy for it's easy for me to sit back and be like, well, I'm in a I'm in a news organization that believes in the objective truth. Like that's not us. We don't do that. But you see it seeping in to our decision making. You see us mm-hmm. say like, oh, well, you know, this piece that doesn't make us feel great about ourselves, but it's not terrible, did good on Facebook <laughs> because like it like kind of like yeah. tweaks people out. Yeah. Um, maybe we do more of that. It's yeah. hard to – Absolutely. It's hard to say no to that. Um You know, we've – That's fascinating. We've done, we've done some work around um, – trying for other emotions so we have a we have an entire brand called stitch which is repackaging content from local stations uh that are human interest stories and heartwarming stories from local markets around the u.s and the idea is like instead of going for you know anger as an emotion right we want to go for heartwarming like mm-hmm. we're like oh is the so sound we're looking do you for. think that's going to become more and more relevant the closer we get to the election 
the closer we potentially get to impeachment, are brands going to be backing off of news content? And do you think listeners, users, consumers will need to find a safe, want to find a safe space that is just neither one of those things, you know, isn't going to elicit anger or the opposite? I would really love to believe that as we got closer, everyone was like, what if we just cooled down a little bit and Mm -hmm. had like nicer conversations still goes and like, on and- um i think if i had to guess assuming assuming no changes to the facebook algorithm which is the wrong thing to assume we've learned that once a quarter if things continue on the track they're on right now i would assume we're going to see a higher volume of more divisive content more widely shared building up to the election and certainly throughout an impeachment process because that that stuff is going to drive high emotion people Mm. like the closer we get to the election the more people will be motivated by emotion on either side of the aisle and people will see results by playing into that uh and so I, i think you'll see a lot more of that stuff i do think you'll see some success for brands that that sort of offer an escape I'm a, I'm a giant fan of the Dodo. I think they do incredible content and I think they do this really well. The idea of like, we're going to elicit a heartwarming emotion mm. on social platforms. And I think they have built the audience that they've built because people do want a break and not everyone wants anger to drive their newsfeed. And, and some people will self-select away from that. But yeah, unfortunately, no, I, I think we're looking at like a, more divisive, more challenged media landscape yeah. the next and, year. And with that, I actually think that it's a perfect time to take another break. Yeah, let's let's okay. all take a break. <laughs> take a breather, watch some yeah. Stitch videos. <laughs> In this next segment, we're going to get to know a little bit more of the personal side of Andrew. My name's Rebecca Fitz. I'm from Warby Parker. Hi, I'm Chris Hansen from Ignition One. We are hosts of Retail Is Your Business. Retail Is Your Business is a weekly podcast covering the intersection of innovation, technology, and business strategy in the world of retail, online and offline, across all industries, with a focus on consumer experience. We deep dive with insiders from industry leaders to cutting-edge startup founders. Crucial insights, career journeys, trends, new ideas, and the state and trajectory of the retail industry become accessible with a fun and comfortable morning radio vibe. Listen to Retail is Your Business every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Because retail is your business. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network and find prior episodes at contentisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Andrew, let's start off where it began. You were born in New Orleans and then you lived on a boat for a bit. That's, tell us about that. That's right. Hold on. Um, let, let's cue this up a bit. Yes. What was your Halloween outfit? Last Halloween outfit that you remember dressing up as? That could shed some light on oh, the deeper yeah, yeah, personality, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? There you go. There you uh, go. That's a that's a good question. I did not really dress up for Halloween last night because I was I was flying back, but we have some close friends with a daughter who invited us to go trick or treating with them, uh, and so I had a captain's hat. I wore the captain's hat. 
Okay. <laughs> there's, there's a nautical theme in there somewhere, yeah, I'm yeah, sure. Absolutely. There's, there's also a sense of procrastination yet again. Yeah, right. Yep, that's right. That's right. And always being, and, but yet being a little yeah, prepared. prepared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I was born in New Orleans. The first couple of years of my life lived like outside of uh, New Orleans in this little tiny town called Luling. And when I was very young, my parents decided uh, to sell everything, buy a sailboat, and leave. And I was maybe... I think I was three when we moved onto the boat, and my grandparents were thrilled with this idea. <laughs> uh, I think I lived most days in a life vest. There was a uh, there was a this little like leash thing that would clip onto the back of my life vest and keep me attached to the boat at all times, so that if I fell over, I would just be like hanging there, right, kind of like right. swinging back and forth against the hull. <laughs> we sailed. From Louisiana, sort of down the coast of Florida, spent some time in the Florida Keys, spent about six months in the Bahamas, uh, came back to the Keys, and then finally settled in Florida when it was time for me to go to preschool. And we, for the first couple of years that I was in school, still lived on the boat hmm. and would live in marinas in Florida. Uh, and I would go to school like any other kid, except I would wake up in a bunk. I would... Hmm eat my breakfast in the galley uh and then to go to the bus i would like climb up the like up into the cockpit jump onto the dock and then walk through the marina up to the bus stop did you find did you, did you ever feel like you went to school and like no one else is doing this I it, I was always surprised yeah. that no one else lived on the boat. <laughs> and, and the hurricane <laughs> season was interesting as well. Uh hurricane season was interesting. It, we it was not until I was a teenager we were on the boat. We had moved off the boat at this time, but we were – the fun thing about living on a boat is it's an apartment. It's a small apartment basically yeah. that floats and you take it everywhere. So if you go on vacation, you literally just take the apartment. <laughs> so we would – you know, we'd be like, oh, like let's – it's Memorial Day weekend. Let's go for a sail and we would like sail Stop. somewhere nearby. We moved off of the boat. Some years later, but but still had a had a sailboat, treated it very much the same. There was one time, most of the time we got really lucky with hurricanes. Um, there was one time my father and I were down around a town called Punta Gorda and we looked at the weather and there was a – or listened to the weather at that point in history. Listened to the weather and it was a – there was a tropical storm coming. We're like, we should probably get home. So we sailed out into the Gulf of Mexico and we were right on the front edge of the tropical storm, which was – had I not been a teenager, probably would have been frightening. But I was maybe 12, so I thought it was awesome. I thought it was super metal. And <laughs> I was basically like lashed to the bow <laughs> – changing the sails nice. constantly because like a uh, wind speed in a hurricane changes uh pretty frequently mm. and on a sailboat if you have if your sail is too big for hurricane force winds it'll rip the sail mm. so i'd have to like take that sail down put the storm uh -huh. jib up take the storm jib down when the wind died down put the big jib up and, so then, and, me and meanwhile we're like going up and down uh -huh. like 10 15 foot waves i felt super badass <laughs> uh yeah 
That's awesome. What, did it turn into a hurricane or was it just a... Uh, Tropical Storm Alberto, I don't think okay. ever did turn into a hurricane. Okay. He kind of sideswiped the west coast of Florida okay. and then hit the panhandle. That's awesome. Um, it, yeah, as as storms go, it was not a big storm. Yeah. We were in a sailboat. It right, was right. not <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we're living on the sailboat. Okay. We're in the Bahamas. And I'm four years old at this point. We're in one of the out islands in the Bahamas sort of not connected to kind of the infrastructure of the Bahamas, no, no big towns or cities. And every probably twice a week, there would be a boat that would come in that would bring provisions and mail from the mainland, the mailboat. And the mailboat had fruit, fresh fruit and vegetables on it. And we're ashore when the mailboat comes in and I see that they have a bushel of bananas. And I'm four years old and it looks exactly like it looks in the cartoons and I start freaking out. I'm like, I want it. I want it. I want I want that. My dad is like, no, absolutely not. That's absurd. They won't sell us an individual banana. They'll only sell us the bushel. He's like, that's ridiculous. We're three humans who needs a bushel of bananas. I have a tantrum and my mother, turncoat, says, well, Dan, it would be nice if we had some fruit on the boat. My dad looks at her and is like, really? You too? (laughs) Fine. So he buys a bushel of bananas. He hoists it over his shoulder, walks it through town, puts it like down into the dinghy at the bottom of the dock, brings the dinghy across the harbor, winches the bushel of bananas (laughs) up onto the boat, hangs it from a stanchion above above the cockpit. And I reach up and I take one banana. And I eat it, I open it, and I eat it, and it's the most amazing thing I've ever had in my life. It's just like the cartoons. And then I take a second banana, and that's pretty good too. And I take a third banana, and that's perfectly fine. And then for a week, we eat bananas and everything. (laughs) My mother, (laughs) yeah, my mother is like making banana bread, banana pancakes. My dad catches conch and makes bananas and conch. We have bananas and fish. We make banana chips, like potato chips. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. And of course you can't freeze anything on a boat, can you? Can't, nope. And, <laughs> and every time I'm like, I'm hungry, I want a snack. My dad looks at me and is like, eat a fucking banana. <laughs> and now I don't like them. <laughs> That's an awesome story. <laughs> I mean that's that's a lot of traveling and, and experiencing life when you're young. Nowadays, where do you where do you frequent? You go down to New Orleans, clearly mm-hmm. quite a bit. You bring back, I believe was it crawfish? You were saying? I did. Yeah, yeah. Brought... we uh, we had a New York City crawfish boil, which uh, does not actually boil implies the verb to boil. We boiled nothing. We <laughs> had the crawfish boiled in Louisiana and then shipped to us, um, and it was awesome to. I love to eat crawfish. It was awesome to eat a bunch of crawfish. It was perhaps more awesome to watch our New York friends, many of whom Tried. had never, yeah, had never <laughs> encountered a crawfish before, be like, uh. <laughs> so I'm sorry, I ripped the head off? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, you want me to, I put the head in my mouth and I suck the juice out? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. the deal. That's the deal. <laughs> We've reached the end of our segment, and uh, I think what what's important to leave our audience with is some valuable final thoughts. And I think if we're thinking about our audience, a lot of people within the the business space, perhaps going through disruptive changes, the way that your 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 business is going through or has been going through. What are maybe words of advice of experience that you'd want to leave them with? 
in this time, as it has been for the last 10 years, as I expect it will be for the next 10 years, the most important value I hold for creating media is flexibility. Understanding that whatever you're doing today will likely change tomorrow, change in six months, change in 12 months, and to build systems, businesses that can respond flexibly to changes in consumption, changes in production, changes in distribution, because it's not, it's not going to stop changing. Right. And if you are in the business of creating media, enjoy it. I think it's a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Like to, Mm -hmm. to have to rethink what you're doing that frequently is tough. Sure. But is, I think really exciting. There's not been a time certainly in the last 50 years where there's so much change in the way that media is produced and consumed and distributed. And I think there's, there's a lot of opportunity to have a lot of fun with it. Well, thank you. And I guess the last thing we also ask of every one of our, our, our guests um, is how can our eager, excited, uh, listening base uh, reach out to you or, or contact you? Well, I'm on the LinkedIn, as you must be these days, but probably uh, probably Twitter uh, is the easiest way to find me. I'm Magic Andrew on Twitter. Um, <laughs> and I am, as the kids say, uh, have my DMs open. Great. <laughs> Thank you so much, Andrew. My pleasure. Natasha, for being such a wonderful co-host. Andrew, fantastic conversation. Thanks so much. I had a great time. Till next time. Thank you again for listening. This is Michael. Bye. This has been Content Is Your Business, produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2019. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network and find prior episodes at contentisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Thank you for listening. Thank you.